This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and welcome to Talking TV, I'm Jake Cantor. This episode, Tony Hall unveils the BBC's biggest arts push in a generation, but sparks concerns that he's indulging his own personal passions. We'll assess if the DG is out of step with his viewers. From high art to high rollers, Talking TV will then take you to opulent West London, where we'll clink champagne flutes with Made in Chelsea producer Sarah Dillastone. Finally, we're back on the telly previews trail. Find out if it's worth joining Steve Coogan and Rob Bryden on their follow-up to BBC Two's The Trip. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. Joining me in the studio is broadcast editor Chris Curtis. Uh, another busy couple of weeks, uh, including the launch of the Indie Survey. Always busy, Jake, yeah. as you know, on broadcast. Yeah, the Indie Survey went well. It's a huge piece of work that we do every year, and uh, we had a l- um, launch party for it this time. So, yeah, very good. Uh, yeah, any big trends this year, Chris? Lots of consolidation. ITV buy, seems to buy an Indie a week, either the, this side of the Atlantic or the other. And, um, yeah, quite a few of the um, what we still rather archaically referred to as true indies, disappeared from the list this year as they got gobbled up by bigger entities. Also on the show is broadcast columnist Stephen D. Wright. Uh, welcome back. Hello. It's been a little while, hasn't it? Yep. You've got a cold, haven't I've you, Stephen? I've got Steven? a cold. I've got a media <laughs> cold. But you're marching on. I'm marching on. What's uh, What's been keeping your eyes trained to the screen? Well, I've been enjoying Doll and M, the living... You, which it, isn't doing very well. Well, you know, it, it, it's to me it's one of those ones that if it gets recommissioned, people are going to go on about it and it's going to hit big but it's a real, you know, find. But the audiences don't seem to have noticed it yet, but it is brilliant. And what about W1A? Have, have we been watching that? I haven't laughed once, but then I don't see it as a comedy. You it's know, a bit too close to real life, I find. The consensus seems to be it's a, it essentially a documentary, yeah. as, far as, as far as we can tell. Anyone who's been in that building knows that's exactly what it's like. And listening to them talk, their media bollocks and the yeah, no cools and right, yeah, no's. And, ooh, it, make, it makes my flesh creep. It really does. Oh, maybe, maybe we shouldn't watch any more then. Um, we'll, we'll move on to our first item of the week, uh, which is Tony Hall's grand plan to increase arts programming across the BBC. Uh, the Director General took to a stage at New Broadcasting House to reveal his ambition to make BBC Arts as renowned a global brand as BBC News. There were commissions too, lots of them, not least a second outing for The Hollow Crown and plans to revive landmark series Civilization. But while the news was warmly applauded by a room of art grandees, it caused grumbles in and around W1A, with some claiming it will further alienate younger viewers at a time when BBC Three is preparing for drastic cuts. Uh, leading the criticism was Hattrick Productions boss Jimmy Mulville, who claimed that the BBC has embarked on a mission to make itself irrelevant in 10 years' time. Before we get stuck in, here's Tony Hall tackling the issue head-on at the start of his speech on Tuesday. The arts really matter. They're not for an elite or a minority, they are for everybody. If ever there was any truth in the idea that the arts were for relatively niche audiences, so many of you here today in this room have proved that that's just not the case. You just have to see young people talk to each other online about films or music or live performance, the way visitors flock to our museums, our theatres and galleries, and the millions that join in with festivals and big events, like the proms. The arts are more and more part of people's lives, part of the discourse of modern life. They express who we are, and we really must reflect that, the BBC, with you. Stephen, 
Uh, do you agree with Tony, or do you think this is esoteric nonsense? Esoteric nonsense, Mr. Hall. I listen to that, and I just think, bollocks. It sounds like, you know, Bring Back Civilization was, what, 1970? Something like that? I can't it's, remember the exact date. Exactly, yeah. you weren't even born. It's like, that's old-fashioned arts, and that seems to be the message. Whether they do do cool, trendy, new things that young people actually are interested in, I hope so, but it doesn't sound like that. It sounds like old-fashioned, sort of Radio 4 style, arts, whatever, you know, it doesn't sound relevant to me. And, I, and I'm quite old. You know, I'm not even that young. Chris, what was your view on this? It makes me a bit nervous, to be honest. It makes me a bit nervous. The context, obviously, is the a couple of weeks ago we were talking about the cuts to BBC Three and the, the potential that they might lose some younger audiences, younger audiences losing faith a little bit with the BBC. And when you read through the list of what they've ordered, just the subject matter, you know, it's a lot of Shakespeare, a lot of opera, mm. ballet, portraiture. It feels difficult to sit here and, and criticise the BBC for having a bash at trying to... Um, this is what the BBC should be doing to a certain extent, isn't it? <laughs> doing programming that commercial broadcasters can't do. I mean, they should, absolutely. If they hadn't have uh, axed BBC Three three weeks ago, we'd all be sitting here saying, well done to the BBC. It's that juxtaposition. That context. And yeah. that's what makes this look a little bit sort of, uh, you know, insidious or whatever. It's it's that thing of they've got rid of the youth and they've brought in the, the middle age. And it's like, yeah, OK. And so you think it's the timing of the strategy rather than the strategy itself? Well, definitely. I mean, as, as I say, the BBC Three axing is too dangerous looking in the light of we're bringing loads of opera and Shakespeare. You know, there was nothing wrong with opera and Shakespeare, but, it, but you know, get rid of the youth, bring in that. That's the message, if that's what's coming across. Yeah, and rough cut uh, TV boss Asher Taller's message resonated with you, didn't it? The, Absolutely. The, the, the old man walking into a nightclub, turning down the music, so he, so he can, could hear his Mozart next door. Well, you know, it's, it's, it's become true in less than two weeks. I mean, that's now we are into a W1A sitcom plot. You know, they've, they've made this kind of PR announcement that supposedly, you know, saves BBC Three and puts it online, which is somebody would have said would have sounded really cool because that's what the young people are doing, watching on, online. Everyone's had a very emotional reaction to that. We're still reverberating, and then they announce this, and it's everyone's gone, ooh. So it, it does seem a bit, you know, awkward, I suppose. Yeah. Do you, th- do you think this kind of news, Chris, will add a bit of momentum to the Save BBC Three campaign? I think the same BBC Three campaign is probably an exercise in futility, to be to be completely honest. Uh, Tony Hall and Danny Cohen have nailed their colours to the mast pretty firmly on this. It, the only way it's going to get saved is if BBC Trust rejects the idea. Were BBC Trust to reject the idea, then that would, I don't know, in my mind, you're looking at serious question marks about Danny Cohen's position. You know, if you announce the most seismic uh, strategic decision for BBC television in a decade and then your governing body says no that's not the right way to go that puts you in a very precarious position I can't it, BBC three is not going to be saved in inverted commas it's just up to the BBC to make the move online as painless as it can be and then as successful as it can be with the right kind of content uh, well there's some positive news in here I mean a lot of indies have won a lot of work you know, there's one or two projects that feel right. You know, this the BBC Four drama again uh, yeah, with this dialogue look, series. Look, it's really easy to come across as black and white in, in, the, in these things, and it's not as though we're sat here. I'm, I don't think Stephen is. I'm, I, I'm certainly not saying that we don't think there should be any arts programming on television, and that 
Tony Hall's personal tastes are, are sort of suddenly starting to direct the the content plan of the BBC. It's just that you 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 read the the details of the shows and you sit there and you cross your fingers and you think, please let these subject areas be delivered and covered in a modern, exciting, interesting, accessible way. Because if it isn't, then there is going to be problems. I think. Okay, sticking with the arts uh, theme, we had uh, news this week that Sky Entertainment Commissioner Phil Edgar Jones is going to become the new head of Sky Arts. Uh, Stephen, with your entertainment hat on, what did, what did you make of this? Oh, I was delighted. I mean, Phil's a really good uh, creative sort of leader. It doesn't feel like anyone's got a bad word to say about Phil. He's the nicest yeah. guy in telly, after me, of course. <laughs> and, um, but basically, uh, what Phil can bring to Sky Arts is a bit more life. I mean, sometimes there is a, a dryness to the kind of, and, and, and an ageist kind of quality to a lot of the programming. And I think the one thing they should do on Sky Arts is just bring it down a little bit younger, if possible. Because there's only so many 70s rock uh, reminiscences and whatever else you can watch. But Sky Picking Phil shows that they, they want to bring in an entertainment kind of sensibility and a whatever. And that's what Phil's got, definitely. And he knows what he's doing. So I think it's good, good news. Really Chris, good. an interesting appointment. He's getting a bit more money to play with as well. They won't quite tell us how much, but uh, the, you know the budget's been edged up. I don't think we're suddenly going to see panel shows on Sky Arts or, um, you know, shiny floor stuff. But I think it's that, can they give the the high quality content on there a little bit more cut through, a little bit, make it a little bit noisier, make people find it? Because at the moment, you still sort of feel like it's lots of maybe hidden gems on Sky Arts rather than things that really the wider public talk about. OK, let's just uh, jump back to the BBC briefly and uh, chat about plans to decriminalise licence fee evasion. Don't adjust your sets because this is important stuff for Auntie, I promise. Uh, after much toing and froing in Parliament, it looks like the government is going to assess whether introducing civil penalties is a better way of enforcing licence fee payments than dragging people through uh, the court system. Chris, the BBC is worried that this could lead to an increase in invasion and therefore affect its funding. But it feels like change is inevitable now, doesn't it? It looks that way when you sort of look at the political landscape and you realise that sort of across the spectrum now, the coalition government and and the Labour Party seem to be kind of in agreement that some sort of decriminalisation will take place. I mean, look, it, it does feel a little bit removed from the creative community and it does feel maybe a little bit dry. I think the crucial thing is, can they find a way of ensuring that the BBC doesn't lose any more money from... Uh, evasion than it loses at the moment. And if there's a change made and it and it means that more people are inclined to not pay their licence fee, then there's trouble. And it's up to the BBC, the government, whoever, you know, the smartest strategic minds in our sector to find a way to make that happen. And Stephen, does it feel like the BBC is a bit under siege at the moment from from sort of independent we all, perspective? We all hate the BBC at the moment. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the new Channel 4. <laughs> and finally in the news section, uh, our commission of the fortnight, uh, Talking TV's esteemed honour, goes to BBC One and Shane Allen for reviving Comedy Playhouse with a trio of new sitcom pilots, including a story starring Hugh Dennis as a BBC weatherman. Uh, the Playhouse brand launched classic comedies including Steptoe and Son, Till Death Us Do Part and Are You Being Served and returns after a near 30-year hiatus. Chris, do you think this is a good idea? Do you think it will encourage new talent back to the BBC? The big question is um, pre-Watershed comedy, isn't it? I guess, I don't know, that these these three pilots sound as though they've they been... They feel like it. They've been conceived as pre-Watershed. It'd be great if the BBC could get some cut-through pre-Watershed comedy... Everyone says it's the hardest thing to do pretty much in TV, and I give them the attempts that we've seen in the last few years. I 
tend to agree with them. Does the Comedy Playhouse brand resonate with you, Stephen? Only because I'm about 150 years old, I can still remember <laughs> it. But um, I mean, it's a 70s brand. You know what I mean? There's Ronnie Barker and all those kind of things. But uh, the idea of a comedy playhouse is exactly what the BBC should be doing. That's what everybody wants. Every writer wants a chance to do a one-off because an initial idea might not be be strong enough to to support eight run, uh, you know, a run of eight or whatever. However, a one-off suddenly it's it takes the pressure off. It shines. Someone gets to kind of nurture it. Boom! Off you've got a hit that can run for ten years. Do, do you, you think know. that Sky has sort of stolen this idea with with Playhouse Presents and Little Crackers yeah, and seized I mean, it for itself. They've all they should all be doing it. Nobody owns this idea. I mean Channel Four used to do it. This is where the PTK ideas came from as well. Uh, Channel Four have done it, Sky have done it, BBC are doing it. They should all be doing it. ITV could start doing them as well. Yeah. That's what the BBC Peter Fincham has talked about it briefly, I think, uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. But it feels like they've they've sort of gone full. Well this might inspire other channels to do that. So, you know, even better. Okay, we'll leave it there. That's your news for this episode. Uh, my thanks to Stephen and Chris. Next up, we talk to the queen of structured reality television. Yes, Sarah Dillerstone was part of the Lion Pictures team that launched The Only Way is Essex in 2010, but has since journeyed west to oversee E4's Maiden Chelsea. The BAFTA-winning show is a firm fixture on Channel 4's youth station, combining high production values and heightened reality to offer a window on the lives of affluent young Londoners. With a loyal audience and a big online following, E4 bulk ordered three more series of Maiden Chelsea late last year and has recently agreed a spin-off series set in New York. Before bringing Sarah in, here's Proudlock, Jamie and Alex chatting about love over a game of poker. Matt, I mean, you, guys, you guys have been together for, for a bit now. Is she the type of girl you could fall in love with? With me, it takes a while. And I think after my first love, it's been a bit Phoebe. harder for me to... With Phoebe, yeah. I don't know, I just never really sunk back into it that quickly. It always takes a while. Do you think she, she loves you? I don't know. You'd have to ask her. Why don't we text her now? <laughs> I mean, I just like I mean, come the on. bottom of things. Exactly. <laughs> you know, shall I... Do you, do you love Alex Mitten? Okay, do you have Biggie's number? Yeah, I think so. What I'm did you say to you, I love you? What would you say? Uh, I'd say, I'd be honest, I'd say, I'm not sure if I love you, because I don't at this stage, I don't think. That'd be quite sad. <laughs> could just say thanks. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome, Sarah. Thanks for joining us. Hello, thank you. For uh, me. A, a bit of a disclosure at the top. Um, Made in Chelsea is a proper guilty pleasure for me. And you're gearing up for Series 7. We are, what, yes. what surprises have you got in store? Actually, it's funny that you played that clip. The big thing that we're following at the moment is Binky and Alex's love life. Um, are they still together? If it's a guilty pleasure, should I be ruining it for you? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. Do you want spoilers? <laughs> um, it's, it's really dramatic, actually. Yeah. I watched episode three yesterday and genuinely it is pretty harrowing. Like I was in the edit and had to hold tears back, which has never happened to me in Maiden Chelsea before. I was just, it was so sad. I can see it on your face. Yeah, you look, you look no, extra with emotion. Yeah, no, it is because it's Binky and Binky's been with us in series one, you know. And we know them so well. They've been on the show now for like seven series. And it's weird. I was saying the other day, I don't know another show where the cast members have been around for so long. They've sort of lived their life on TV now for so long. So you do get really attached to them. You know, you 
genuinely care about them. And when you see stuff happening, you're like, oh, God, you know, that that's real emotion that you're watching there and real tears, and she is properly heartbroken. I mean, so, as with all good drama, you're, you're sort of entirely dependent on your characters, aren't you? How do yeah. You, how do you go about teasing out storylines, or do they just present themselves? It's a bit of both, actually, because sometimes you think that you're going to get, like, a massive explosive storyline at an event or something, and it just doesn't happen. Because actually the cast get there and go, oh, I don't actually think that. And you're like, oh, I thought you did. (laughs) But then other times, like with Alex, for instance, like we knew because of that clip that you've just played, like Alex did not want to tell Binky that he loved her, but we obviously knew that Binky loved him. For them, like watching that play out is so tough. Like she had to watch him say to Jamie and Proudlock, you know, oh, it's fine, I'm not in love with her. It's like, it's not fine, she's a girl and she's going to be really upset by that, FYI. That's the sort of storyline that you can keep following until he says it or he doesn't. So at that point, we can just, you know, we can play that out for a very long time. And that, I mean, and that is, you know, completely real. So tell us how about how you approach it. Do you, do you sit down with them and talk about what's going on and then and then think of ways of structuring the show? Or just talk us through sort of well, your approach one, to an average we episode. have, with the cast, I'm really, really straight with the cast. They sometimes get annoyed. They're like, oh, I can't believe you've put that on TV. I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa there. If you take part in a structured reality show, your life is going to go on camera, every single part of it, if we find out about it. Because oft sometimes they lie to us and they think that we're not going to find out about cheating rumours. We always find out. So we're really straight with them. It's like, if you cheat, it's better that you tell us because we're going to find out. And when we do find out, it's going to be on TV. How do you find out you've got your sources? Oh, yeah. I Honestly, it's unbelievable. People, like, phone me and go, oh, my God, I sold somebody at a party the other night. <laughs> so I'm you're like, part oh, of the gossip yeah, circle. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> So with an episode, for instance, we will know the storyline that we're going to follow for the hour, perhaps. And we will we think we know what the end of the show is going to be. So then we can sort of draw that out with, you know, dramatic end of parts and stuff like that. And it will be really about who knows what, actually. And we always encourage the cast not to talk about anything to each other until they're on camera so it's always real reactions how often do you just put two people together that genuinely don't want to be together just, a lot. For, just, just for, for our entertainment a lot and how do you convince the cast to do that what's the process that you go through do you know what they've all bought into it now and i find it really interesting they're just used to it yeah i mean they produce the show a little bit because they know well number one they all want to be they all want top storylines so they know that if they keep something back and do it on camera, they're going to get airtime. So they've become so savvy. And actually a part of that is because they've been on the show for so long. They know how it works. They know how it works more than me. You know, it's unbelievable. <laughs> so they'll come to you and say, oh, this is going on. Or, uh, it might or, work better. or they might not come to us and they'll just do it on camera and we'll be like, oh my God, I can't believe that's just happened. <laughs> going back to series, I think it was series two, actually, when Millie threw a drink in Hugo's face. Never knew that was going to happen. And so we just followed it, you know, and that really is documentary in a way, you know, because we're just like following the the action. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, we have beautiful cameras and lights. Yeah, on on that point, I mean, it's a lot of craft goes into the show. You can see it on screen. It's, you know, glossily staged, lit, graded, all the rest of it. I mean, tell us about that process. Well, 
from the very beginning, I wanted to make it look very, very different from Towie, actually, because, you know, Towie had looked like a soap, really. And we wanted it to look like the closest we could to an American drama. And actually, I used Gossip Girl as a reference point. I got uh, so the Sony cameras in that hadn't been used, actually, in reality TV. It was the F3s that hadn't been used. So we got those in as a start. And I think that really, really changed the look of the show. Those cameras are really important, actually, because they look very filmic. Uh, you can use them in a small environment, so in real locations, and you don't have to be, you know, like 12 feet away from the cast members. You could be right in their face, and it'll still give you that lovely sort of depth of field. And then some bloody good directors, actually, who really love what they're doing. Directors line up to work on Made in Chelsea because it's the only reality show out there where they get so much time to craft the look of it. And they do have the lights and they do have their tracks and toys and they're just so excited. It's like, something new's coming, can we use it? I'm like, yeah, 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 try it out. Yeah. But I do think it's really important to keep those, you know, that sort of that railings, you know, those slow, you know, moves across the railings. It's a very Chelsea now and you know like the street signs and stuff like that I do think it's got a quite unique look now how much resource do you pour into finding locations because yeah it feels like every episode you're you're in a new swanky bar or club well interestingly series one people genuinely didn't really want to be on a reality show in you know sw3 so we had to pay quite a lot for locations in sort of series one and series two now People are like, come and film it's the here. Opposite. It's the total opposite. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because I mean, there's Chelsea tours now. Like people like come to Chelsea and like have breakfast at Bluebird and have like made in Chelsea hen nights where they go down the King's Road. <laughs> um, it's quite incredible. In fact, the other day I was in a restaurant that I've gone to for years and I looked on the menu and there was a made in Chelsea cocktail. You're, you're seeping into culture. Right? <laughs> and we were t- chatting just before you came in about casting, and you've got, I think, Leonardo DiCaprio's ex-girlfriend, Emma Miller, joining the cast. Oh, uh, yes, right? we do, yeah. Is that, yeah. Uh, so how do you go about finding people, and how well, do you feel they're right for the show? Okay, so Emma Miller, for instance, we couldn't really ignore Emma Miller because Spencer was on holiday over the break, our filming break, and everything that the cast do end up in the Daily Mail online. And there were pictures of uh, Spencer and Emma Miller uh, sunbathing. And it was just all over the place. We had to meet her. He makes the show tick, doesn't he, Spencer? He's pretty good, actually, I have to say. So um, does he draw people in? and, and or, or, you know, do all he, the cast draw people uh, he, in? No, do you know what? He absolutely knows what's right for the show. Like with Emma Miller, for instance, we said, obviously, we want to meet her. And he was like, yeah, she'll do the show. She'll do the show. So, you know, he knows how to obviously talk people into doing the show. She was actually up for it. Some have not been, obviously. Because it, and, and most of the casting does come from them and their real lives. So, for instance, with Spencer, you know, most of the girls that have been on the show via Spencer have come from the fact that, you know, he's either snogged them or slept with them or has some history with them or is wanting to. Yeah. And what sort of duty of care process do you go through when you when you're approaching people and talking to people and saying, look, your lives are, are going to be on telly? We take duty of care really seriously, actually. Channel 4 have praised us on it many times, which I'm very pleased about. There, there was a couple of scenarios, actually, in episode two with Ollie Locke. He was coming out um, on camera, and actually we had filmed a scene that uh, was quite distressing, actually, in the end for some, you know, some of the people there his family members, and they phoned me and went, we just don't want this on on camera. And at that point, you're like, 
actually, yeah. I mean, if this is going to genuinely affect your life, then we can't do it. And actually on that occasion, you know, the person who he was telling didn't know and it was quite stressful for them. Um, and that had affected, you know, most of the show after that, but we pulled it because it just... It was too much. It was too much, actually. And ultimately, it is a entertainment show on E4. And, you know, you don't want people getting that upset. So yeah. there's there's that side of things. So we do take it very seriously. And then, but also we are very, very straight with them. You know, they've got access to all sorts of resources. And we say to them, it's a reality show. And if your partner cheats, it's going to come out. It's going to come out on camera. It'll probably come out in quite an uncomfortable situation. Are you up for that? You yeah. know, and if you're not, don't do the show, actually. And if you do do sh the show and it's really upsetting, perhaps pull back a bit, you know. Okay. Uh, and just finally, um, you've got a spin-off series in New York. Ooh. How will that work and um, how will that fit with the rest of the series? It's very exciting, obviously, because New York has got the same sort of, you know, bars and nightlife and stuff like that. And the cast are really excited about going. We were talking the other day, actually, about how you explain all the cast being in New York. And I was saying, well, the audience are so savvy now. I don't know if you can, like, make up a reason for being in New York. Because <laughs> yeah. ultimately, Channel 4 wanted to be in New York and we all want to get, go to New York. So I think we'll be pretty obvious and just go, we're all in New York now, you know, doing the same stuff <laughs> and bumping into trip. each other own corners. <laughs> and I'm sure we'll find a river to cry. Uh, and how many, you're doing six episodes, is that right? We're doing six episodes, yes. So it actually is full on because we finish filming series seven. We have a week, we all go to New York, we film all through the summer, we come back, we have two weeks, and then we film series eight all the way up to Christmas. So it does mean that the cast... Non-stop. It's non-stop. So the cast this year, it'll be the first year that they have, that they have three weeks off camera in the whole year. Blimey. Yeah, okay. it's full on. Well, we look forward to seeing their lives in yes. front of our eyes. Uh, thanks for joining us today. Uh, Made in Chelsea returns to E4 on Monday, the 7th of April at 10pm. Thank you. To end this fortnight's podcast, we give you some pointers on what you should be watching over the coming weeks. Stephen D. Wright and Chris Curtis are back with me, and we'll start with BBC Two's The Trip to Italy. The semi-fictionalised, mostly improvised account of Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon's restaurant-reviewing jaunt around Italy follows their successful 2010 series, The Trip. Here are the two comedians, locked in a typical joust of impressions over a bowl of pasta. I was wondering whether you'd actually booked the mini in Italy the job just to give you the opportunity to say you're only supposed to blow the bloody doors off uh, but i've done it now so hopefully that'll be an end to it did you see him in the dark night rises and his voice gets even more emotional than it's ever done in the past before i don't want to bury you batman i will not put you in the ground in a little box i will not do it master bruce i will not do it i'm not going to bury another batman Another Batman? How, how many Batmans has he been burying? How many are there? I've buried 14 Batmans I've buried so far. 14 Batmans. And their little pointy ears I'm in a box. I'm not going to bury another nylon cloak. <laughs> we're, we're, we're all chuckling away in the studio. Stephen, uh, I, I wasn't sure how you'd react to this. Uh, you clearly like it. I loved it. I loved, it. I loved, I loved the trip initially. And when I started watching this one and he said, no, no impressions, I was like, oh, no. And then when that moment started with the Michael Caine, I was like, oh, this is it. It's, this is TV gold. I could have watched that for hours. The two of them just riffing. I mean, they remind me of Derek and Clive. It's like mm. just, they're just going for it. Mm. And you can't work out, has this been planned or are they just comic geniuses and they're just literally turning the camera on? And then, you know, five minutes later, it's all quite poignant and, 
there's a whole thing about aging and that the, the girls mm. don't like them. And I mean, it's really, really amazing. It's it's superb TV. It feels like a real treat, doesn't it, yeah. Chris? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think that what's really nice is almost if you ask me what genre of programming this was, I'd find it almost impossible to tell you it's like the you know we what there's so many sort of naff celebrity travelogues mm. on tv and it's like the kind of direct polar opposite of that it's the and it's also nice just listening to the bit of audio there you could imagine this as a radio show to be honest that it's just, as a podcast maybe and maybe as a podcast yeah very <laughs> even yeah. as a food show i mean you're watching food as well yeah it's, like, it's and that's what the co- cooking show should be like listening to that and watching the food and you just sit there, you get hungry, you laugh, and you want to go to live in, in Italy. It, f- it feels like you're sort of part of their gang. That you're, you get to, you get in, you're in on the joke, mm. and it's also, you know, just a really good snapshot of kind of strange male friendship, where you're constantly sort of chiding each other and sort of taking the piss, but it's kind of all based on this really close, this close friendship. I, I just, it's great. Yeah, I mean, playing devil's advocate a little bit. Do you not think that some viewers might find it a bit indulgent? I don't know. I mean, if they, if it didn't make you laugh, then possibly. If it, if it, I mean, as Chris said, it would be a celebrity travelogue then, and then it would just would be the two of them going around eating and looking out the window and occasional historical facts. But the fact that you you get that amazing comedy gold, and they just shove it in there as well as this kind of stuff of you know is Coogan, uh, uh, you know. I can't say the four-letter word that he's, you know, that he's playing. <laughs> but is he? And you know, Rob Bryden being affable but not that affable. That's and, great. That's and, great. You know what I mean? I mean, this is the thing. It's it, you really do get a, a sense of an insight, whether it's a fictionalized insight, which I personally think it's not. I think it's real. I think <laughs> I think I'm watching something real here. I don't think anybody. There's no writer's credit on it. I, I look for ages. Who's written this? There's no writer. So it's like. That's what makes it not indulgent. It's an amazing, it's a little, little work of art. That's what it is. Mm. Yeah, I mean, how much do you think is constructed? I, 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 you I, can't I, tell, and that's yeah, the beauty. Yeah. You have no idea. You've honestly no idea whether what you're watching is the two of them mildly mocking themselves yeah. or in just indulging the sort of extremes of their personality. And, you, you know, you, you said in the, in the intro that it's kind of a lot of it is improvised. I've got no idea. It could be perfectly scripted. You just can't tell. And that's why it's it plays around with your expectations. It, it sort of messes with your head a little yeah. bit, but you don't care because it's so enjoyable. Yeah, and their impressions are genuinely good. Aren't they? <laughs> They're incredible. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the Michael Caine emotional. It was just it's, it's superb. Yeah. It just and then it just the next one comes on, and you also don't know where it's going. You can't mm-hmm. predict what the next bit is, and so because you think if you were describing to somebody, oh, it's two guys driving around, they have a meal, they sort of make jokes at each other. It sounds like nothing at all. Mm. Yeah. It's it's amazing. I love that it doesn't it. it doesn't build to a climax. There's no there's no format points. It just I think one of the reasons we like it so much it doesn't feel like loads of other stuff that's on oh. TV. So a ringing endorsement. Uh, the trip to Italy is produced by Revolution Films, Baby Cow Productions, and Small Man Productions. The six part BBC Two series begins on the fourth of April at ten pm. Uh, next up is New Worlds, a four-part sequel to Channel 4's acclaimed 2008 historical drama The Devil's Whore. Created by Peter Flannery and Martine Brandt, New Worlds is set after the English Civil War and follows a story of love, loss and the human price paid for freedoms we enjoy today. The company pictures drama stars The Fool's Jamie Dornan and here's a taste of the first episode featuring the Countess of Seacourt uh, considering an offer on her land. A grand new square in Soho Fields. Houses for rich men. Exactly. And houses need bricks, and bricks need clay. No. My lady? No, I will not sell you my land for more clay pits. There's your answer, Sir George. 
You've not heard my price. I have heard the distress of the poor souls whose livings were ruined when you enclosed the common land to make your bricks, whose children now work day and night digging clay to make you rich and themselves wretched. The king wants a new capital to replace the one burned down by the Catholics. Who are up to their old tricks, hatching plots to kill the king and overrun the kingdom. That plot was got up by wicked men to discredit all Catholics. Oh, you must tread carefully, my lord. It's high treason to deny the popish plot was real. I will never sell you my land. Chris, uh, enjoy this, or was it a bit of a history lesson? Oh, no, I didn't. I, I quite like that period of history. It's really fascinating in a slightly geeky way, so I, I love that bit of it. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was I thought it was great. You kind of go into this thinking, how's, you know, it's been a few years since um, The Devil's Horn. You kind of think, you know, what, what will period drama look like on Channel 4? It's exciting. It veered, at points, it veered close to being a bit cheesy. I thought the scene that we just heard was one of the better scenes. I wanted a bit more of the kind of political intrigues of the court and a bit less of the kind of setting up these two two sets of what appear yeah, to be star, two sets of love star-crossed stories. lovers that are going to kind of try and save the, the day. There were bits of it that I that I loved, bits of it that I was slightly not, not so sure about. But um, no, it was, really, it was really enjoyable. You could see a lot of money on screen. Yeah, you could. Stephen, is this your, is this your bag? Not really. <laughs> um, and I don't want to be a pain in the ass, but I found it really confusing. Uh, it is possibly, quite complicated. It's a complicated if story. If you don't know the period. And then, that's the other thing. Yeah. The, the period is... is you know, I studied restoration comedy at the university and I thought, oh, here we go. Christ, I didn't know what I was watching. I was like, I didn't know about the Popish plot and this and that and had to do a bit of research afterwards. And so I did feel a bit stupid initially because the, there is a lack of political context. So you kind of have to get mm, get that. Okay. And then, of course, by the end of the, the, the episode, you, you know, you're into your two love stories and whatever. And so you can, oh, here we go. You know, but initially uh, I found it a bit off-putting. And I didn't watch The Devil's Whore last time because I remember I watching watch a bit it of it for five minutes and, oh, God, I'm watching this, turned it off. <laughs> and, and you know, historically, having done a bit of research now, you think, oh, yeah, it really is interesting. A, an amazing thing and the fact that the Puritans in America were, were sort of like the Taliban and whatever else. And But that's not coming across at the moment. It's it's that thing of it's sort of it's implicit, not explicit, and so you're going to have to wait a bit. But, you know, who doesn't want to see Jamie Dornan and a beautiful girl kissing each other? What do we the, make of Jamie Dornan looking looking a bit like Kevin Keegan circa 1975? <laughs> oh, he's dreamy. <laughs> he's a bit too good looking to be a 17th century kind of, you know, ruffian. And she looked like she was in a Timothée advert with the white... Well, there's, I mean, this is the casting. It's uh, the, the, the Timothée advert young lady was a, a not unattractive actress who was in Skins. One of the other leads is a chap who was in Southcliffe and some other Channel 4 stuff. They've obviously gone out and got some quite young, sexy talent to come in it to try and make it a bit more accessible, I think. And uh, I think that works pretty well. It is a bit confusing. It, it flits between America... I thought the, the the brief scene in which we meet Charles II and that was quite mm. you know that was quite affecting and I kind of that wanted a bit a bit more of the, the yeah. but I think it's probably because I've just finished watching um, House of Cards, you know there you yeah. kind of get a comic book uh, version of, of politics and all the backstabbing and that and I kind of wanted more of that and less of the sort of Robin Hood freedom fightery mm. love story which felt a bit more formulaic but um, I mean I'll definitely be tuning in for the second uh, episode. Stephen, will you? I think I'm obliged to now. If I watch a whole show, then I will watch the next one. But Would you have watched it if we hadn't forced you? I'd have watched the first ten minutes, and then I'd have probably gone... A bit on. like you did with The Devil's Whore. Yeah, there's probably something on the other side, you know. 
There's always something on the other side. And it's always, a, I, I always enjoy watching Channel 4 drama, I have to say, because it does feel tonally very different to, to you know, what else is on the market. There was a touch of kind of Game of Thrones, I, I thought, in the kind of the look of it. Mm-hmm. It was quite sort of uh, gritty. It, it was filmed in Romania. Yeah, so I mean, that, that kind of the, the bigness of the, yeah. of the America, of the so-called American landscape looked good. But I was a bit like, the, you know, the actors were very, very good looking. Very good looking. <laughs> very pretty. It was, pretty, it was you know? slightly self-consciously epic. It was a bit like they'd said, right, let's let one of the sort of checkpoints for an epic drama. But it does, I mean, it starts rather well. You know, you have this, everything going along quite quietly, and then a whole lot of Native Americans attack this settlement in, in, in the States. And what you get from that, from the beginning, is you think, okay, this isn't Bonnets and Mr. Darcy. You realise you're in a, a sort of different, blood. a lot of blood. It was quite, a, I mean, it was a good battle scene. I, I, I thought yeah, it grabbed it's, you. It's and, a bit um, more visceral. I mean, did they kill that deer? I, you know, I started writing a letter to the RSPCA. <laughs> <laughs> and that was a very, very impressive yeah. Complaints addressed to Channel 4, please. Yeah. <laughs> so New World's debuts on Channel 4 on Tuesday the 1st of April at 9pm. Uh, that's your lot for this edition of Talking TV. If you've liked what you've heard, don't keep quiet about it. Please join in the conversation at broadcastnow.co.uk. All that's left for me to do is to thank our guests, Stephen D. Wright, Chris Curtis and Sarah Dillastone. I've been Jake Cantor. The producer was Matt Hill. And until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to Broadcast, talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. 